0: World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim
1: Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson, and I'm just thrilled for the stories that you're going to hear today. From Dick Klein, he was uh, part of the 101st Airborne. He was a paratrooper in World War II, and it's going to be a great story. Be sure and check out my website. I have a brand-new website, americhicks.com. And uh, be sure and follow me on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Like me. That would be greatly appreciated. And uh, just really excited to do this show with Dick Klein. And this show precipitated from a trip that I took part in in 2016 with a group from the Denver Place Activities League that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebration. And standing on the beaches there with those guys, came back and realized we need to tell these stories. And they truly are changing my life. So, Dick Klein, World War II veteran, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project.
0: It's glad to be here.
1: Well, it sounds like you have quite a story, and we'll get into this. But, uh, Dick, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the same town on my, well, I'm not living there now, nine miles away, but still town on Huron, H-U-R-O-M, Ohio. Okay. Born and raised there.
1: Ah. And uh, how? where were you when you heard that, uh, that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Well,
0: <laughs> I'll make a long story short. My parents, my dad was a commercial fisherman, and the fishing business went kaput during the Depression. And so he bought a bar up in Port Clinton, which is about thirty some miles from here. In the meantime I stayed home in Huron so I could graduate in our high school. I was a junior. And uh, so once a week dad would come down and and, and uh, some time with me. And it happened to be he came down on a Sunday and I hadn't I didn't have a radio, never listened to the radio. And he came down oh, it's a big uh some place called Pearl Harbor and I neither he nor I ever heard of Pearl Harbor before but he told me about uh, the Japanese uh, bombing Pearl Harbor so that was the way I found out uh, I was just a junior in high school at the time
1: Dick Klein what went through your mind when you heard that?
0: Not too much I it, uh, you know it, it was sort of exciting and I, I knew obviously it was going to be a war and I was just at the right age but uh, I knew I was going to be involved in it one way or another but uh Uh, No, I can't say it startled me or I've I've realized the uh, severity of it. Okay, I I was pretty naive at that age.
1: Well, I think we all are at that age, but you guys, your generation grew up mighty fast. How did you end up uh, in the the military?
0: What was what now?
1: How did you end up in the military? So 1941, you were a junior in high school. Did you graduate and then join the military?
0: I graduated in 1940, and then I enrolled at Ohio State. Uh, university. Okay. Uh, and uh, I spent two years my first two years at Ohio State. I lived in a fraternity house and the only reason I could live there was had washed places and with uh, cable, and the only thing I had to pay was my dues which was I think $19 a month. Oh. And, and uh, it was not the greatest two years of my life. I had no social life. Uh, uh, money, this is 1940 we're talking about. And uh, uh, no social life, no money, and I wasn't the best student in the world. I was getting by, but barely. And uh, you had a choice at that age. Uh, either you'd be drafted or you can enlist. And my dad had enlisted in World War One, and I pretty much made up my mind. I'll never be drafted. I'll do like Dad did and, and enlist. Well, in December of uh, one year after Pearl Harbor, uh, <laughs> exams were coming up and I wasn't looking forward to that too much so I went to each of my professors and I said uh, I, I didn't have tears in my eyes did I I talked you know, very solemnly uh, maybe I have to miss the exam because I'm going to go in the army and they said don't worry about it son uh, you don't have to take the exam so I did and I probably got better grades <laughs> I didn't take the exams than if I would have but anyway it was Christmas time and it just seemed like the right time to go in with the exams coming up and uh, being drafted or enlisting, so I went down to downtown Columbus and, and enlisted.
1: Okay, and that was Christmas time then in 1942. Yeah, this was uh, very close
0: to Christmas in 1942.
1: Okay, and you and and, and did you enlist for something specific? Yes, uh, you had a choice, and I'd already right, made up my
0: mind. I heard about the paratroopers, and it seemed exciting. Now, the fact that they paid you $50 more a month if you became a jumper, I really didn't enter the picture. Uh, $50 didn't mean that much. And uh, but it just sounded exciting. It was a new branch. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a well-known branch of the Army. So when you went through the line, uh, they'd ask you, do uh, you have a you, know, if you If you wanted to be infantry, you could say infantry if you preferred the artillery, or well, you could say that, or you, you could say tanks, or you could say Navy or Air Force. So I uh in the Army, and I liked it on the paratroopers. And so they they, they didn't argue. I, they, uh, that's where I ended up.
1: Okay. So you're in the Army now, and you said paratrooper. Where do you go for basic training?
0: Well, I enlisted at Columbus, and uh, I'll tell you a very short story on that. I never heard anybody had the same experience. I enlisted, went down, took a physical, went over and sat in a chair, Sat there for a while, and i I asked the guy next to me, "Why are we sitting here?" He says, "Well, we're going to Fort Thomas, Kentucky." Well, I had left the attorney house and never told anybody <laughs> where well, I was going downtown. And I certainly didn't tell anybody I was going down and enlist. and I never thought they would take me the same day. I thought, well, you know, say, "Come back next week and uh, catch the right. train or whatever." Right. Well, I, we walked right from taking physical right down the train station and went to Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Wow, Fort uh, Thomas was just across the river from Cincinnati. So, I went through some more tests, there, intelligence tests and shots and so on, and finally got a uniform because this was December and I went down the list. I had nothing on but the clothes in my back and a sweater.
1: And you, you it, weren't even it, able. It, you were you able to go home and say goodbye to anybody?
0: No, I called my friend, uh, my best friend, in, uh, from here on I said, Jim, would you go up to Shirley House? and packed my clothes. I said, I'm in the Army. He said, I'll oh, put your kidding. He said, well, I'll see you tonight. I said, no, you won't. I said, I'm leaving for Fort Thomas, Kentucky, in about a half hour. And that was that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went up and got my clothes home, and I only had the clothes on my back. Unfortunately, my billfold. There was not much money in it. But that was it.
1: So that's uh, you're in the Army now, Dick Klein. <laughs> yeah, uh, more quickly than I expected. Than you'd expected. Uh, so you do you do basic training at Fort Thomas, Kentucky?
0: No. At uh, Fort Thomas, we uh, took a bus over to uh, Cincinnati to the uh, train station. And uh, there we we had a, a group, uh, a guy leading our little group. He wasn't any more of a soldier than I was. He was just a private. And uh, the order said to go to a place called Camp Georgia. Well, none of us ever heard of Camp Georgia. So the train took us to Camp Georgia, and uh, a colonel by the name of Colonel Johnson was there at the train station, as he was every time recruits came in. And uh, that's where we took our basic training. There's a one regiment camp, a very small camp, and the 506 had trained there just before we did. So, you know, the build is huts were already, the barracks were already built, and uh, so we spent 13 weeks uh, in training.
1: Okay, and what was that training like? Well, our colonel, uh, this
0: Johnson, was a graduate of Naval Academy, believe it or not, and uh, he decided that he'd prefer to be in the Army, so he graduated from the Naval Academy and got transferred to the Army. And he must have some influence, because he now is a full colonel. And you don't get to be a full colonel just uh, overnight. But uh, he was a full colonel, and uh, he was a regimental commander, and he surrounded himself with good men. He surrounded himself with West Point graduates, people like a fellow, uh, two guys that became later Lieutenant Generals, Cunard uh, and uh, Ewell, and uh, another officer by the name of Ballard and Richard Allen. Uh, so he surrounded himself with good men. And, our training was obviously how to use your weapon, um, physical training, a lot of physical training. He was a nut on um, physical fitness. Uh, every two or three times a week, we would go on 5 miles not walk, but uh, jogging. When we left uh, uh, tactical, we were in excellent shape. And a lot of guys got weeded out because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the physical part was uh, a little too much for them. Well, so, uh, we we trained there for, as I say for thirteen weeks, and then we went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia.
1: Okay. And how long were you at jump school?
0: Well, I did, at jump school is four stages. First stage is physical uh, training. Well, they one day that for us because we were had, had thirteen weeks of physical training. Uh, the next uh, phase was packing your chute. You packed your own chute for the first five jumps, and uh, you work with another fellow and uh, the two of you packed pack most of your chutes that you would make your first five jump. And many uh, of you did some training on um, jumping out of towers, at 250-foot towers, mm-hmm. and they would haul you up uh, to the top in a parachute. Now, the parachute was already inflated. You didn't have to fall and have it open. It was already inflated. But they would uh, then say, you ready? <laughs> and uh, they'd cut you loose, and you came down just like a... You would if it was an airplane, except uh, you didn't have to go out the door and jump and look down five or 600 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the last, excuse me, the third, fourth, it would be, uh, the last phase was the actual jumping itself. And five jumps and you got your wings.
1: Okay. It had to be pretty interesting, that first jump. Do you remember what went through your mind as you were get, preparing to do that?
0: You did so much training, like at at the Fort, at Tacoma, Georgia. Uh, excuse me what? I've got a bit of a cold. Okay. Uh, Bless we had a tower there that was about, oh thirty 30 feet, 35 feet up the air, and you jumped off that tower, and you had a harness on, and a, a cable caught you. And then you slid down the cable to the to the ground. Well, you did that day after day after day, and so it just became a, almost a habit sure. of jumping out of that just like you jump out of an airplane. And then they had a uh, a fuselage of an old C-47, and you'd get in there and uh, pretend you hook up through all the rigmarole that you have to go through, sound off, check your equipment, and so on, and you then jump out of this about three or four feet from the ground. You do that day after day after day, and pretty soon you, you, know, you sort of look forward to it. So the first jump I thought was an, was an easy jump. Mm-hmm. No one ever hesitated. I don't know the man I much that didn't uh, that refused to jump. Well, wow. so it was an easy jump. The worst one was the last one. <laughs> when uh, you know, if you make that one, why hey, you've done it. So, so by then you're you know you're, you're used to being in a plane flying. Eight nine hundred feet up in the air, but if you're any any time that you think a little bit, maybe your last jump, you you didn't want anything to happen there because this was to be the end of it. So, but I all in all, I'd say all oh, five jumps were uh, no 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 problem.
1: Okay, now I imagine that we are well into nineteen forty three now. Uh, so you finished jump school. Where do you go from there, Dick Klein?
0: Well, we, we went back to cola. packed up. And went to a place called Camp Georgia. Okay. Yeah, now, this is a large large camp. And I think the 506 was also there, uh, you know, sharing the, uh, mm-hmm. the barracks and so on. And there you did tactical training. Uh, did a lot of training, made practice jumps there. And uh, you did, mostly it was for officers, moving companies around to where they're supposed to be and getting organized and using your weapon. And going to we had to go down to Clemson University in South Carolina. Uh, they had a, a rifle range down there, so we had to go down there and qualify for your M1 and your carbine. Uh, so uh, it was it was a training area to get you prepared for the, the next step. So after Captain McCaw, we went on what's called maneuvers in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And this, again, was mainly for the officers, especially for the higher officers. Uh, and we'd be able to move a battalion around, and they would give them problems. Uh, a Red Army against a Blue Army. And uh, it was all we did was follow orders, uh, not knowing really what was what was going on. So we did what's about the whole six weeks or seven weeks of maneuvers in, in Tennessee. And uh, then we uh, came back to Camp McCall, and uh, within a couple of weeks later, we went up to Camp Miles Staddy from Massachusetts which was a port of embarkation.
1: Okay. Now, uh, so you've done all of your training. Are you preparing now to go to Europe?
0: Yeah, we, we got to uh, Nile Spanish and got on a little ship called the Gothels. It was named after the the engineer built the Panama Canal. <laughs> and uh, our whole regiment was on on this one ship. It was called a Liberty Ship at that time. They, they mass-produced them. And, uh, of course, a lot of ships were, were built, uh, uh for World War II, and this was, was one of them. It was just a passport ship that was not on, and we went over in a convoy, yeah, with several other ships and from naval ships to, uh, escort to, to, to England.
1: Okay. And where did you, um, make port at England? Where did you arrive? Well,
0: we literally were, as I recall, we were at sea at, at the, uh, uh, New Year, this is, we were over at the, excuse me, I cough again. That's okay. Uh, we were over in, um, at the end of 1943. Okay. And uh, so we were landed in England in the early part of, uh, of January. Okay. And we went to a little town called Lambourne, it was about 35 miles or so from uh, London. And uh, there we uh, were put in Quonset huts, which were pretty comfortable. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh that's where we stayed and uh did more training and made some more jumps, uh, getting ready for DJ.
1: Okay. Uh, Dick Klein, let's go to break. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project, talking with Dick Klein, World War II veteran. And uh, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll take it from where we're at. You have arrived in England. You're preparing for D-Day. And I would like you to explain, just uh, you were part of the 501st, the 101st Airborne. I'd love to have you explain how all those things work so that... um, But all of our listeners, I just don't think they understand that. So we'll be right back with Dick Klein. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Thrilled to have on the line with us World War II veteran, Dick Klein. Before we get to uh, more of his story, I just wanted to give a shout-out to Hooters Restaurants. My story with Hooters Restaurants is a story of liberty, free markets, and a conservatarian perspective. It stems from when I served as a city councilwoman in Lone Tree. And if you're interested in learning more about that, just email me at kimandamerichicks.com. And I love sports. Individuals working hard to be the best they can be to compete, to win or lose. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. And it is March. It is March Madness and I love March Madness because I am a KU basketball fan. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. So be sure and uh, check out Hooters as the place to watch all of the games. Hooters specials start at $10 for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have Hooters wings delivered right to your doorstep when the girls come over on Wednesday nights. I order Hooters new smoked wings because they're delicious and only half the calories the girls love them so order your hooters wings to go or have them delivered right to your front door more information visit hooterscolorado.com that's hooterscolorado.com and let them know that you know the americhicks So now we're going to get right back into the story with Dick Klein, World War II veteran. He was a paratrooper with the 101st, which is, you guys are revered over there in Normandy. Uh, uh, You say 101st, and you guys are just just totally revered. But Dick Klein, explain to our listeners. You were part of the 501st Infantry, the 101st Airborne, and it says PIR, so that's a Paratrooper Infantry Regiment. 3rd Battalion. Explain to our listeners just exactly how that whole thing works.
0: Well, let really me take where we were in Lambor. Now, while we were in Lambor, we did more training. Uh, we made some more jumps. And what the jumps really was what we were going to do when we actually uh, uh, went into Normandy. Excuse <laughs> me um, We really didn't realize that, but uh, uh, we, were, we would jump in, uh, in England and have a place we're supposed to assemble. And uh, all the other companies had the, had the same uh, the same experience. We went out to the airports uh, probably two or three different times before we went out on uh, on, on June the fifth. Um, it it's quite a, an operation getting a, you know, several thousand men uh, to the air drones and get the other men to the ports where they're going to get on ships to go over, on you know, the roads in England are limited. So we had to practice uh, literally getting people to where they're supposed to embark from and uh, and get them there on time. So we went out to the airports at least two or three different times, not knowing, is this it? Uh, is this a real thing? But finally, uh, after about the third time, uh, we went to the air drones, and it was a different situation. They had certain buildings uh, guarded where they had the sand tables that uh, showed you where you were going to land and what you were supposed to do. So in, uh, in early part of uh, July, or June, I should say, uh, we went to the aerodrome and uh, the invasion was supposed to take place on the 5th of, of June, but they had to postpone it because of weather, uh, which <laughs> they didn't tell us this, but uh, we find out about this later. But on the, on the 6th of June, we went out through the airplanes, and uh, you, you, well, you knew this was it. And um, we had gone to the sand tables and knew where we were supposed to land and what we were supposed to do. But uh, as I'll tell you a little bit later, that things never work out the way they're supposed to in a war. Yeah. Um, but our company, my battalion, the 3rd battalion, led by Colonel Ewell, was put in what they called... Divisional Reserve, and uh, our job was, in case anything went wrong with the other objectives that the division was supposed to take, uh, our our battalion would uh, be assigned to go go there. Well, it worked out that that, that the other objectives, and I'll tell you very quickly what they were. Uh, From the beaches of Utah, we jumped behind Utah Beach. There were two American uh, beaches, Omaha and Utah. Mm -hmm. Uh, we jumped behind Utah, and they had causeways, which are roads or ways uh, with water on each side or marshy grounds, and uh, you needed those roads for tanks and trucks to get from the beaches to them. <laughs> so we were outside those little town called I call a Poopyville. I'm sure the French don't see it that way, <laughs> but uh, that was one of the objectives of the. Uh, the 101st and, and my regiment the 501 and there was a, a lock where you could close the lock and it it would stop the water from flowing and flood and the area behind it well that was to keep the Germans from uh, getting to the beaches uh, so that was one of our objectives and another objective was to blow some bridges to keep uh, over the new river to keep the uh, Germans from crossing so uh uh, we took off around ten o'clock in the evening. And it takes a while for the uh, planes to assemble to get into formation, and so uh, excuse me again. So, so uh, we finally headed toward France. And our pilots were all young men, uh, never been in combat before, flying C forty seven, which uh, are so thin skins you can take a twenty two and and almost go all the way through it. So as we flew and got near the coast, anti-aircraft well, fire came up, and uh, they hit a fog mag, too. And so they, they broke formation, and each uh, plane became uh, by itself. And I pilot, and I'm sure the pilots and the other planes did the same thing, uh, they went to hit the deck, and went on very low. So you normally you jump around five, 600 feet. And uh, the speed of a the C-47 is, well, 220 to 240 miles per hour. Wow. They're supposed to jump you at 190 miles an hour. Well, our pilot had the throttle full thrust, and uh, it hit the deck, and of course I jumped last. I never he had done, uh, again, excuse me again. <laughs> I'm sorry. No problem. Uh, but, uh, as we... Uh, they throw this, what they call it, the green light on or the red light I should say and that means you stand up and hook up and get ready to jump and then when they put the green light on you jump well I'm in the rear of the plane and I don't know what's going on back there and uh, but our plane is swerving up and down and you could tell by the throttle that he has slow throttle 200 some miles an hour so they finally the green light went on and the, the men jump and of course I'm the last out and as I got to the door, my first vision as I went out the door was at a church. And I swear that the cross in that church was so close to me, I, I, could, I felt like I could almost kick it. So okay. I, we did not jump at 500 feet. Uh, I'd estimate that when I went out the door, we were probably around 250 feet or even maybe lower. Wow. And going full blast. The first thing you do when you, 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 you shoot open is you look for the ground. Well, I looked for the ground, and there it was. I don't think I don't think, uh, I don't think from the time I went out of the plane it was over eight, nine, ten seconds, and I hit the ground. Fortunately, I hit in the backyard of a of a farmer in a little town called Bloville in uh, in France, and that's not where it's supposed to land, obviously. And I didn't know the name of the town was Bloville. They didn't have a sign there that said, "Welcome to Bloville. <laughs> And when you land, the first thing you're supposed to do is go back the direction that your plane came from. And that's because other men had jumped before you, and so you'd go that way to pick them up. And uh, I knew which way to go because the church was not over 200 yards from me. Okay. So I got out of my parachute, and I did something I don't know as too many other uh, paratroopers did. But we were issued switchblade knives, and, and I always feared landing in water. Well, it didn't bother me too much about landing in a tree, which didn't happen that often. But water—if you, with all the equipment you had on, which was oh, ninety pounds uh, of equipment at least—if you hit on water, you went down like a sinker. So I jumped that, that jump knife my, or that switchblade knife, and as soon as I hit the ground, the first thing I did was go was dry ground. I wanted to get out of that parachute, mm-hmm. and I cut the, the risers away, and. Uh, I went to the nearest hedgerow, which was probably 20 feet away from me, got my weapon out. I jumped with what's called carbine. Mm-hmm. It's a 30 caliber carbine that has a folding stock. They, they made them specially for paratroopers. You could fold the stock and put it into a, a sort of a huge holster made of canvas. And uh, if you jumped an M1, you had to jump it in your arms, and it was in two pieces inside of a casing. And they had when you hit the ground, you had to obviously un- take it out of the casing and put, put it together, which did not take too long. But the carbine is much quicker. So once I got on the ground, uh, I wanted to get away from that house. I didn't know whether there were Germans in there or not, which I, I don't think there was, but I, I didn't know that. I went to the rear of the, the property, and there's a hedgerow there. Climbed over and I was into a dirt road, which I assume the farmers use that to get to the fields with their cows and their carts and so on. Now we were given what they call—you've seen maybe in Cracker Jack—clickers. Uh, you, you press it and go right. You press right, it right. again and uh. go another click, click. And we also were given the password and the flash thunder. If I said flash, well, the other guy is supposed to say thunder. Well. So I'm creeping along the road, not knowing where I was, but heading towards that church because that was the direction the plane came from. I don't know, maybe 15, 20 minutes, uh, I saw a silhouette of a helmet. Now, German helmets are not much different than ours, so there's no way of knowing whether it's a German helmet or American helmet. And I drew a beat on the helmet, and I said, flash. And there was a, a pause, and I never... Told him about men in my platoon about it, but uh, the answer was, uh, it's me. <laughs> well, it happened to be a, a, a kid from my platoon, and I presume he's in our plane, too. And uh, so he and I we, we united. I'm a corporal, with two stripes. That's about as low as you can get as a non Tom. But he's a private, so I'm the one that has to decide what to do. So we proceeded on down the road. And with the next half hour or so, uh, we picked up three more men. None of them did I know. None of them were from our airplane, and none of them were my company. But uh, there were now five of us. And one of them had a bad leg. He is I don't know, it was a bad sprain or if it's broken even. But uh, we assured him that we'd go as fast as he could walk, and he used his M1 as a crutch. So we proceeded down the road, and now, um, oh, I, how long, I have no idea, an hour, uh, two hours. No no opposition. We didn't uh, run into any Germans. We could hear firing uh, going around, but uh, nothing uh, is in our immediate area. Well, now it's getting daylight, and I thought, well, this is not too good, walking with five men uh, down a road and might walk into who knows what. So we decided to dig in, uh, slip trenches on the side of the road, uh, on a parallel or perpendicular uh, hedgerow and left one man up uh, by the road and uh, we never even finished digging in. Uh, pretty soon he said, troops are coming. Well, they were Americans. And I was led by a lieutenant. He had probably 12, 14 men with him. I was never so glad to see somebody in my life, uh, oh, wow. to see this lieutenant. So we joined his outfit. When, uh, well, we ended up uh, in a little town called Iseville. I beg your pardon, Veryville. very okay. My Battalion was supposed to assemble at Ivesville, but Maryville was uh, well, some distance, not too far away. So we uh, were turned over to the commanding officer who had assembled other men at uh, at Veryville uh, and we were posted to form a defensive line around the town. And and then the Germans uh, were just as uh, surprised by this invasion as as anybody. And they were not organized. We never did run into, a, like, a whole battalion of Germans. So uh, it was relatively quiet. Yes. So we stayed in uh, in Maryville um, for some time. And uh, eventually they said, well, if you know where you are, go join your, your unit. So uh, Purdy and I took off and uh, went, uh, found our way to uh, Isil, where we were supposed to assemble. Um, I might mention one little thing that not too many people knew would happen. But while we were moving up to, uh, to very well, a long plane flew over. And uh, a stick, It's in broad daylight, about 2 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a, a, a stick of men jumped out of that plane. And uh, they didn't land near us, so I had no idea who, who they were. And uh, so when we eventually got to uh, Isil... Uh, my best friend was there. He'd, he'd, he'd beaten us, even though he came over at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He'd gotten there before uh, we got there. And uh, his name was Jake Winkert. And his plane didn't jump. Uh, it was, the light went on, red light, stand up, hook up, but no brain light. So he went up the cabin and asked the pilot, listen, well, why haven't we jumped? And he said, it's not the real thing. It's a, it's a, a false false flight. Well, he landed back in England, and the rest of the planes were there and were empty, so he knew that the, that they just didn't jump. So he went to the uh, operations office, and the colonel there, he said, Colonel, you you got to get us over there. We've we got all, uh, some mortars and our cargo that, uh, that our platoon needs. And he says, well, you, can, you can't do it. He says, you're going to stay here. And finally, he pestered the colonel for Oh, probably an hour or so. So finally, the colonel called in the pilot and, said, why didn't you jump these men? He says, I was lost. I didn't know where I was. He says, I felt like a murderer if I had jumped them. So the colonel finally said, Well, we will do. We'll refuel your plane if you take them over now and jump them. We'll drop all charges. So that was the plane that we saw that <laughs> came over us oh hours after the invasion. I, I don't know of anybody else that had that experience that Jake did, but he's the only one that flew t- t- to Normandy twice. Wow.
1: Well, you know, what I heard, though, when uh, when the American planes came over, that, you know, it as you mentioned, it was young guys. A lot of them had never been in combat. As you mentioned, you're coming in low, full throttle. Uh, you know, some of the in, in jest. Uh, in good jest, some of the D-Day veterans that I've interviewed have, have said, "Well, the you know the Air Corps, all they did was um, hit some of the cows over there in, uh, uh, or, or I guess the bombers, all they did was actually hit some of the cows in Normandy." So there was kind of some some jesting because it was mayhem that day, wasn't it?
0: Well, you know, I don't blame them. I, I can understand the the problem they have but uh, the pilot, I admire him uh, for Jake's case. All he had to do was throw the green light out, and they would have jumped, and no one had ever. On the difference, but uh, he he just didn't think it was right to jump them if he didn't know where they were.
1: Wow, what what a story! So, hey, Dick Klein, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we we only have one more segment. This has been absolutely fascinating. It's going so quickly. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project, talking with World War II veteran Dick Klein and his experience as a paratrooper on D-Day. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Be sure and like me, follow me, and uh, just thrilled to have on the line with me World War II veteran Dick Klein. Dick Klein was a part of the 501st Infantry, 101st Airborne, uh, 3rd Battalion. He jumped in uh, on D-Day at Omaha Beach, Uh, and you said you didn't have a whole lot of action on D-Day. Did you run into anything else, Dick?
0: Well, yeah, after his D Day, then we uh went to our main objective eventually for the five oh one which is a town called Carentan.
1: Okay. And
0: uh, so once we organized it at uh it, uh, I, 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 though, uh we now were a, a, a complete battalion. And so the five oh one job was to take Carentan, Which is a sizable mm. town at that you know, at that stage of the uh of France's growth. And I've been back there a few times. So we went to Carantan, and uh, we were assigned to uh, form a defensive line along with the 82nd Airborne on the outskirts of Carantan to keep the Germans from getting to the beaches. And very frankly, uh, there was never any serious attempt by the Germans to break through uh, our lines. So our lines were merely uh, defensive, uh, sending out patrols or patrols. You know, in case anything was uh, going on in our area that we could, we wouldn't know about. And it was pretty quiet. Uh, the only thing I did the first time, that uh, I saw German airplanes. Uh, and they flew very low over our lines one time, didn't fire any shots. And I found out later in reading that uh, this happened because they wanted most of the morale of the Germans who were who, uh, on the other side, not too far away, and they could see that their first, was still around. But airplanes were never a problem uh, with us. So we spent, uh, well, we came back uh, um, just right after the 4th of July. Uh, so our experience in, uh, in uh, Normandy was less than a month. And uh, so it's, uh, we went down the beaches and were put on LSTs and uh, came back to England and then prepared for the next jump. We uh, one interesting incident there. I had a chance to. I see General Bradley. He came around for morale purposes and uh, visited the group and awarded some medals to some of the officers that had earned them. And after he finished the warning, he said, Come on over, fellas, and I'll I'll have a talk with you. So we went over and said, The first thing I'll tell you is, I I know your question is going to be, Are you going to jump again? He says, Yes. And uh, he said, I don't know where, I don't know when. And then I asked the question, I said, When are we going to get out of here? And he said, well, we had a terrible storm on the channel. It was the worst storm, I think, in some 30 years. And it disrupted the invasion. And so all the troops that came in for the next few months had to come in on the beaches because the uh, the uh, Germans controlled other areas. And uh, so all our supplies and everything came in the beaches, which was, which was apple. And he, he said something else I thought was interesting. He said, I'll tell you right now, the Germans are whipped. He said, unless they can keep us off the beaches, um, they can't stop us now. And, of course, he, he was right. So we went back to England. And uh, we are put in a different camp than we were before, but that doesn't make any difference. That replacements came in to replace some men that we had lost and uh, got prepared for another jump. But, again, it was the same routine. We probably went out the Air Force two or three different times uh, prepare for something and then you get ready, and they'd say, Back up, going back to camp. Uh, already, Patton or some, some of the other generals had overrun the objective that we were given, and there was no need to go in. So, finally, in September, uh, General Montgomery, he was a pain for most of the American commanders, and, but uh, he wanted a part of the action, and he had made a plan for this uh, operation without Market Guard, which is going into Holland. So uh, that's what we prepared for. And uh, it was a daylight jump this time. That was the last time, E day was the last time a night jump. How'd they I mean, learned from that, that? Getting their men together, scattered all around, was uh, non-flip. So, <coughs> so we jumped at something around well, 1, 1.15 in the afternoon on September 17th. And it was a daylight jump. The airplanes, was perfect formation when you went out the door, there were parachutes all around. You looked down on the ground, and men were already on the ground gathering equipment and uh, going to their assembly areas. So it was a beautiful jump. The only resistance we hit was coming over the German lines to uh, to get to, uh, into Holland. And I don't know if we lost uh, very many planes, if we lost any. But uh, it was a, a, a what you call an ideal jump. And we landed right where we were supposed to land. And within uh, half an hour, we had gone to where our objective was, which happened to be a little town called Erde excuse me, Erdek yeah. right in Holland. It's right near Meckles. Meckles a decent-sized city. And our job was to uh, set up a line because the whole Operation Market Garden was to defend a road that led from Eindhoven up to Arnheim. If the paratroopers would lay out carpet uh, protection of that road, each side of that road, then the British troops and their tanks would come up that road, cross over bridges, uh, canals, uh, which was, was our objective to capture those canal bridges and the major bridges at Nijmegen, and uh, go right into Arnheim. Well, it went like hawk work until we got to uh, Nijmegen. And the hundred the 100, I'm sorry, the 502 captured the Nijmegen Bridge. And why the Germans didn't blow it, uh, it's still a mystery. But they captured it, the British came up, crossed the bridge, and then they stopped. And uh, they never got to Arnheim. The, the British car troopers who landed up in Arnheim, plus a Polish brigade, were also uh, part of that uh, uh, jump. uh um, the, the British tanks, the British infantry, never got up uh, to Arnhem to uh, relieve those men. It's, it's, I don't sure read Cornelius or Ryan's book uh, A Bridge Too Far. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there are many Americans that, uh, that I think uh, Cornelius uh, Ryan uh, quoted in there that uh, couldn't understand why the British stopped. If there had been American tanks, American infantry, uh, to get up there, they would have done it. But uh, I talked to some of the British soldiers since then. They, they, they don't have an answer for it either. So it was open country, and they it would have been you know, like sitting ducks going up that road because the country in Holland was really flat, and the uh, German artillery would have, uh, would have had a heyday. Yeah. But I think the Americans of tanks would have pushed through, but mm-hmm. we'll never know that. Mm-hmm. So we uh, took our objective and, and uh, back home held the town, and there's a windmill there. Now, I thought, I think it was tulips and windmills. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't say tulips the wrong time of year, but uh, windmills weren't as frequent as I thought they'd be. But this little town that we uh, were assigned to had a windmill. It was an excellent observation because the windmill's 20, 30 feet high Mm -hmm. and uh, had windows. So my lieutenant and my best friend does. Probably Jacob Wingard, the same guy that's airplane went back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wingard and Lieutenant Hilton and myself went to the windmill and uh, set up an observation post. Well, there in front of us were sand dunes, and uh, now the Germans were getting organized, and they occupied those sand dunes, and we could see into the sand dunes uh, quite, quite easily. So Jake uh, was the sergeant in charge of uh, fire orders, and so he stood in the window and uh, had to spot the Germans and estimate the distance and the direction, had to call the order back uh, three or four rounds, whatever he, he wanted to fire. And then, of course, when they fire, you could hear the murders go off, so you know there's going to be a lull of maybe 15, 20 seconds before they hit. So he had to step back in the window to see where they hit so he can adjust the fire. Well, he stepped back in the window, and uh, he turned to me and said uh, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And I thought that a flash cost on mind. That's a six-year-old too. But he fell, and I caught him and laid him down. And uh, a lieutenant came over, and I said, I'm going to go for a medic. So I went out excuse me, and yelling medic, medic, and never got a response. So I went back to the windmill again, and uh, my lieutenant said, well, he's gone. So uh, I lost a, a, a good friend. That, what had what happened? We got shot by a sniper. Oh. Uh, he stood in the window in there. You know, he's, yeah. it, mm-hmm. he's clearly visible, but the, <laughs> to do his job, he had to do that. Right? You can't. You can't uh, right. see through the walls. You have to uh, go right. to the window wherever you can see. Right. So he was a sergeant. That's how I became a sergeant. Oh. He'd okay. gladly give that extra strike right back. To
1: yeah, I'm sure. this
0: hadn't happened. I'm sure. But uh, So,
1: so, so Dick, we, we have, the, we have about eight minutes. I want to make sure that we get to your experience at Battle of the Bulge.
0: Okay, let me finish up Holland okay. and hurry. was great people. I still admire the Dutch people because there are real ones over there that uh, really appreciate what happened. Mm-hmm. I've gone to the Margaret and Cemetery where Jake is buried, by the way, oh. uh, several times. Every tomb or every cross in that cemetery. Uh and there's only three hundred men buried there, Americans, all of them have been adopted by Dutch families. Yeah. And they have a waiting list in case anybody uh passes on. So uh, we spent uh, almost uh seventy some days in Holland. And uh if you kept your head down and didn't expose yourself, I it was the Germans weren't really gonna come across the river and we must have certainly weren't going to go across the other way to Arnheim. So we had, I hated to leave Holland. Uh, mm-hmm. Life was life was pretty good. Uh, apple food, uh, British supplies, chickens, tame rabbits, cattle, oh, everything you wanted in, in the way of eat. Mm-hmm. So it was a good experience uh, in, a, in one sense. So uh, we finished in Holland. They took us back to Reims, France. And this was in the, in fact, we got back in time for our Thanksgiving dinner at Reading, uh, France. And everything looked good. Winter coming, and armies don't fight much in the winter. And uh, some even went into Paris. And the rest of us who didn't to go in, we thought, well, we'll go in later. Uh, on December 16th, I still remember vividly listening to the radio, BBC, and they said, uh, there's been a slight breakthrough up in our uh, dance. Uh, and uh, an hour or two later, where well, the slight breakthrough, became a little more of a small breakthrough, more of a major one. So on the 19th of December, they alerted us. They brought trucks up, cattle trucks, not canvas-covered, but open trucks since now December and pretty chilly. And they alerted us on the trucks and with full lights on in the evening so they could see the roads. They didn't worry about the German Air Force. Uh, they rushed the best they could and took us up the Bastogne. We got the Bastogne on the 19th and we walked in the town because the roads were filled with retreating Americans. It's the first time we'd ever seen uh, men that had been beaten up as uh, as these men were because they took the brunt of the attack of the Germans. And uh, they were good men but they just uh, were pretty much demoralized and pretty well shot up. So we... Past them, walked in the We walked into the and I can make a big story about this because it's a true story. My lieutenant colonel, who had been my retired colonel, Ewell, now is the commander of the of the regiment. Colonel Johnson was killed in Holland, so uh, he had been the uh, Bastogne a, a week or so before the the Germans were there. He'd been there and and was pretty much acquainted with the land. So he's the one that led us in the Bastogne. My company, we walked through Bastogne and went out to a little town called Mount, M-O-N-T. And then we set up a line, a uh, defensive line there. And uh, we'd no sooner set up the line and some German artillery began to come in. Not a tremendous amount, but just enough to uh, let us know that they, they were there and that they knew we were there. That evening, <coughs> they, they yeah copy clerk came over and so, said, I'll take you a radio man and you're going on a patrol. So I I took a kid named Joe Riley, who lives in the San Diego area. Uh, he and I went over to G-Copy and my ex the platoon, the platoon sergeant who got a battlefield commissioner was leading the uh, the patrol. So we took off on the patrol. Joe and I didn't have the slightest idea of what we were supposed to do and so we followed along the and, up and uh, we went to this little town called Neffy so on the way uh, to Neffy, we almost were there and there was firing going on on our left and I crawled up the, the sunken road I crawled up the bank and uh, there was a chateau which I later found out a chateau to me it was just a large building it was on fire and the Germans were attacking it and the Americans that were there were, had to retreat and get out of there because the, the building was on fire so McCurney, uh the client up front, well I know what he wanted me for. So I went up there and I why, well, what's the problem Jim? He says, what do you think we ought to do? And I said, Jim, why are we here? Because no one had told us. He said, we're supposed to find out if this column uh, nephew is occupied. And I, I said, well, we sure as hell know, don't we? Uh, so we then fired back at them, we formed a, a line of fire, they exchanged fire. And uh, pretty soon uh we got orders to pull back. So this is uh, nighttime now. So we pulled back, and it took a while to get back to where we were hoped to go to remote. We couldn't make it back. If daylight began to break out, and so we had to dig in. So we dug in. Germans to one side of us and Americans on the other side, and we stopped the whole day, stepping out in this field, dug in, not knowing what's going to happen next. So uh, during the day, you could hear German mortars, trucks, tanks, whatever it was, over in the distance. And uh, I said, I'm just praying. I hope they don't attack while we're out here by ourselves. So night came, and that's the first thing they did. They order us back. So nightfall came where we, by the couple of dark got back to boat. Well, we weren't back to boat so half an hour. And uh, the Germans attacked. So during this attack, uh, I remember the back end of this little town, the back end of the house, and an explosion. And uh, my leg went numb. I I remember I called out, uh, "Old oh, Klein you used to have a foot." I thought my foot was mm-hmm. shot off because it numb. It was numb. So then medic came over and he said, uh, "Well, your foot's still there. So I felt. I, He had nothing but a handful of blood on my thigh. Yeah, baby, he looked and I had a pretty severe wound. So my buddy from Columbus, Ohio, another one, Sir Boakley, came over and said, Dick, I hate to tell you this, but I don't think it's good enough to get you home. Well, that's the last thing you want to hear hear if you're wounded. You you always hope that one will get you home. And uh, so he didn't think anything of it, but they couldn't get, uh, get me out of there that night. The next day, they came out with a cheap, put me on a stretcher, took me in the Bastogne. And a little did we know at the time, but uh, the Germans soon surrounded Bastogne. And, and I think it was on. on the Christmas day or sometime near Christmas. Uh, and, uh, they sent an envoy in to demand uh, that, uh, that that we, we surrender. Our colonel, our general, I should say, at that time was McAuliffe, Tony McAuliffe. Uh-huh. Taylor was in... Uh, Washington DC getting orders on how deploying us over to Japan because they thought the war was pretty much over until the Bulge. Well, anyway, McAuliffe had to uh, send a reply and he said, "Well, he said we're nuts." He we, said, <laughs> "We we 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 don't need to surrender." And he said, "What should I say?" And so one of the colonels there, by the name of Kennard, said, "Well, your first answer was pretty good." And he said, "What would I say?" He said, you said, "Nuts." So McAuliffe wrote N U T S. It's not a back, the Germans. And uh, I think the, the story is that they said, but What does MOPS mean? And uh, the colonel that took the uh, reply back said, It means American America, uh, go to hell. So. Uh,
1: okay, so Dick Klein, you have been injured. They take you into Bestone and uh, uh, with. Hold on, let me start over. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Okay. Okay, Dick Klein, World War II veteran. You have been uh, injured. You've been wounded. They take you into Bastogne, and uh, Brigadier General Tony McAuliffe, It's very famous. What happened there? Uh, tell us again. Uh, when the Germans sent him a message, what did he say?
0: What did I say? Or what did uh, McAuliffe say?
1: What did McAuliffe say?
0: Yeah. Well, well, he had to write something on the surrender message, so he asked the staff, "What, what should we say?" And the uh, the colonel was named Pinnard. He said, Well, what you first said when you read their surrender message was pretty good. He said, What did I say? He said, Nuts. So he, that's what he wrote down. And UTS. Nuts. And set it back to Germans and, uh, uh, it was the Germans. And it was interpreted the Germans as meaning the same as go to hell. <laughs> so, and my coffee's right, was right. As we know now, they, no German ever broke into Bastogne. The nearest they got was to the outskirts. The only Germans that ever got into Bastogne were POWs. So uh, that all, it all worked out. Okay, and
1: what happened to it you? It
0: became known as the bad bastards <laughs>
1: Okay, so the, uh, we're going to start where you said the only Germans that got into Bastogne were POWs, and then, I, right. s- and then I'll say, and Dick, what happened to you, okay? Okay, okay.
0: what happened to me? I, okay. I just, uh, when I told you I got hit at most, I didn't know at the time what what hit me. I didn't know it was a motor shell or artillery or what it was. So when they... Finally got me out of Monk and uh, got me into the Bastille in the city. And after Patton broke through, and uh, now they're able to get ambulances in to evacuate the hundred men that were wounded during Bastogne. And they evacuated me. I think on January second was uh, I got to France, and that France was the first time that a doctor had had, had examined me. Uh, all the time I was in Bastogne, uh, Christmas and before Christmas and after Christmas. Uh, no doctor ever come around. So at the field hospital uh, in France when finally the doctors uh, came and uh, decided what was wrong with you and which hospital to send you to. And my wound is the type that uh, nerve injury it's the shrapnel had cut the nerves of my leg so it, my I couldn't use my foot my I haven't moved my toes since nineteen forty four. So it's uh, it's it cut off the, all the feeling in the, the, my foot so I was uh, taken to England and uh, put in the hospital 98th General and lo and behold the captain that was in charge of my ward was in Tiffin, Ohio which is about 30 some miles from where I live so he and I became pretty good friends so uh, we were there and they did some well when they, we left France they cleaned the wound out but they left them left the shrapnel in and so when I got to England, they did the same thing. They operated, reattached the nerves to my foot, and for some reason, they never didn't take the shrapnel out. When I go through airports, I have a hard time. At the Melody Fishers, goes <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, with uh, Dr. uh he, he said, uh, I'm going to be your doctor. So he came in every day, and uh, and examined us. So I was there probably two or three weeks or so, and one day I tried to move my toes, and they twitched. And I thought, oh, I'm getting well. And so when Pershing just came around, I hesitated. I really didn't uh, need saying anything to him. About it. So finally, I, I had to say I said, uh, I I'm, I'm probably the first guy ever to ever talk his way back into combat. And he says, Why? He says, Well, I can, I can move my toes. He said, Good. Now we can operate. And then for the first time, I said, Why? What does that mean? He says, Well, we'll attach the nerves, and until you'll be sent home. I could have kissed him. I'd had enough. I, the last thing I wanted to hear is you're ready to go back and join your outfit so uh, I left, uh, left England uh, went came home on the Queen Elizabeth by the way and uh, saw New York for the first time in my life put the hospital in Staten Island then sent to the McGuire General Hospital in Richmond, Virginia and uh, I was in the hospital about a year and uh, they dis- discharged me in December of uh, 1944 so uh it 1944 was
1: a great year of my life. Okay. Well, Dick Klein, World War II veteran, thank you so much for uh, this excellent inter- interview. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks uh, signing off. And Dick Klein, God bless you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you. Have a good day. Okay. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.